Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Shlach Lecha this morning. We're in the book of Numbers, chapter 15. We, when we study the earlier parts, when we study years one and year two, so next year will be year one, we're most familiar with this as being about the spies, right? The episode where scouts are sent out and they come back and they're sent to get facts and instead they come back with some opinions and some editorializing, um, which the Israelites buy into and it, it leads to essentially the condemnation of this generation to wander for 40 years in the desert. So that's what we're coming off of. Um, it, it, we're still in this Parsha, but we're not studying that part. We're studying the end of the Parsha. Um, and so I'm kept honest by having to address all parts of Torah by reading on the triennial. So are you. Um, and then trying to figure out what to do with that without going back to the meatier, juicier part of, of the Parsha. All right, so who would like to read? And if it is an animal from the herd that you offer to the Lord as a burnt offering or as a sacrifice... In fulfillment of a vow explicitly uttered, or as an offering, offering of well-being, there shall be offered a grain offering along with the animal, three tenths of a measure of choice flour, with half a hin of oil mixed in. And as a libation, you shall offer half a hin of wine; these being gifts pleasing of pleasing odor to the Lord. Thus shall be done with each ox, with each ram, and with it, and with any sheep or goat. As many as you offer, you shall do thus with each one as many as there are. Every citizen, when presenting a gift of pleasing odor to the Lord, shall do so with them. Okay, juicy, juicy, juicy stuff here. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> uh, what is a heen? That is a very good question. Um, I do not know. I can look here at my notes. Approximately 5.7 liters. Uh, approximately. I shouldn't have said, let me check my notes. I should have said approximately 5.7 liters. Uh, uh, 12 or 12 pints or 1.5 gallons. Just the things you learn in rabbinical school. Um, right? It's a lot. It's a lot. All right. What? Uh, 14? And when throughout the ages a stranger who has taken up residence with you or one who lives among you would present a gift of pleasing odor to the Lord as you do, so shall it be done by the rest of the congregation. There shall be one law for you and for the resident stranger. It shall be a law for all time throughout the ages. You and the stranger shall be alike before the Lord. The same ritual and the same rule shall apply to you and to the stranger who resides among you. Okay, thank you. 14. And when there shall sojourn with you a ger. So what, how do we translate ger? Stranger. Stranger. Okay. So when, when there, so you can already look at the word yagur and know, right, that there's a relationship to the word ger. Sometimes it's just alliteration, right? Not just. Torah is beautiful sometimes using alliteration. In this case, it's not alliteration. It is meaningful that those letters are the same. Yeah, so I was wrong, Judith. I do want this. I never know, but I do apparently want this. Um, so those, those letters that are in those uh, two words are meaningfully related to each other. So we have the, the letters Gimel Reish, right? So vocalized this way, it's stranger. From, I shouldn't say from, related to the verb Lagul, which is to dwell. Right to live, but I don't. I don't like using live because it can sound too close to chai. Right, you know. So yes, it's not wrong to say to live, but that's English. Like that, we we to have residence to to dwell. So to reside exactly. So there's some discussion in the literature about what exactly the situation of the gear is. We're going to talk about that. Um, so we're, when you look at the etymology of the word ger, 
you can either go to here that that the this is how you do you know in math do you know this thingy in math which means the root so you can do this in uh, linguistics also right so the root can be ger which comes you know that ger comes from lagul so that would mean this is the kind of noun that derives from a verb right that if you, the verb is to dwell, then a dweller is a gale, so that this comes from uh, to dwell. But there's another theory, because you can't really prove any of this. What are you going to prove, right? Who's going to say, yes, that's where it comes from, right? You have to guess um, where some of this comes from. the opposite. Huh? Huh? It means to dwell, it's not a stranger. Ha 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 ha. So this is where we're going. This is where we're going. There's another shoresh, there's another possible root for the word gil, which comes from a word that's nun gimel resh. And in Hebrew, many, uh, the nun is a very weird animal. The nun is a very weird um, actor in Shorashim in roots. The nun often drops. So when you start conjugating verbs that begin with a nun, the nun does weird things and often goes away. So just because we don't see it doesn't mean a nun is not part of the equation. So possibly it is from nun gimel resh. This is where I'm going to go to George. So to dwell would mean, okay, someone who dwells here but isn't native. They're not from here. They live here. Resident. They're a resident. That is different from native. Native. So it's it seems because of how it's used. Well, if we go to how it's being used, it's always used in counter distinction to the Israelite. Right? You were Gerim in Egypt for four hundred years. Right? So, right? They've been living there a really long time, but they're still considered Gerim. Right? Um, so this verb means to detach. So to George's point, George says this is counterintuitive. That gare comes from to dwell is counterintuitive because if it means a stranger, but it's someone who lives here, isn't that the definition of a non-stranger is someone who lives here? So there are some people who agree with George. And say that doesn't make a terrible lot of sense. Better that it goes from nun gimel resh, the verb to be detached, that they have become detached from their people, their clan, their land, their protections, and that that they're kind of floating. Sarah, in Yiddish, it was common to refer to yeah. So that is a later, that is a rabbinic understanding of the word ger. So we're going to talk about it a little bit, not a lot. How is um, different from goy? Goy is nation. Okay. So other, other nations. So right. So we are to be a light unto the nations. Right? That is the sense of goy as people, as nation. That nation shall not lift up sword against nation, right? That sense of goy. That became something that meant the other nations, not our nation, we're Israel. We're not a goy. We're us. And it's, and it's Israel-centric, right? This text is Israel-centric. So goy means, by definition, if it's Israel-centric, goy means somebody else. Other countries, other nations. Um, later, so it's, it's related in a way, just a broader scope. To what? To the to the one person who's a stranger. So it's the whole nation. It's etymologically, it's not related. Conceptually, it's related. Um, it's Hebrew, not Yiddish. It's Hebrew. Goy is Hebrew. It's biblical Hebrew. <clears throat> goy, you will be a you will be a goy kadosh. You will be a Holy Goy. So in biblical parlance, you could use Goy of Israel as well. Just usually you don't because if you're writing from your 
country's perspective, you're talking about other countries when you say goy. But you will be to me a goy kadosh. You, so it's clearly not pejorative in any possible stretch of the imagination in the biblical text. Once you say, though, that goy means them, because we're talking, and that is normative, that you would talk about goy being other nations. Um, it wasn't pejorative. As I said, we're a goy kadosh. But once it becomes really understood that you're talking about them, now you can use that word to mean them. In the history of anti-Semitism, as anti-Semitism becomes more and more a factor in Jewish life, they become... There's a there's a tam there's a taste right a flavor that goes with they, and that's how goy becomes pejorative, because how do people deal with oppression, right? How do they deal with marginalization and oppression and internalized anti-Semitism? We're better than them. That's how every oppressed people on some level deals with it. Or <laughs> Jews are the example par excellence, right? Of how to take oppression and maintain and use as a coping mechanism, we're better than they are. So, because, so, and, and also, interestingly enough, and by the way, just so you know, so you can relax, I'm not taking us off point. This is where we're going this morning. <laughs> I'm not off point. We're not doing any more text. Um, so I'm actually okay. Like I want to root us in this conversation because I think, because this is, this is the basis of our conversation this morning. So, what was I going to say now? Goy. Other. Once, once better. Thank you. So, Asher Bachar Banu Amim, who chose us from among all other peoples, was once upon a time considered a serious responsibility. Right? The people are not thrilled at being chosen. Right? Let's, let's remember the story. They're not thrilled at this. And even as early as the earliest Midrashim, you know, God holds the mountain over their head and says, will you accept my covenants? <laughs> right? So, right? There's lots of interpretations of this story that it was under a certain kind of duress that they, and of course that's not the majority. The rabbis love to see it as, you know, we were the only ones who said, yes, Na'asevanishma, we'll do it, then tell us what it is. But there's enough there to, like, to know that. And the people say to Moses, you go. We can't handle this. Right? You go deal with this. There, there's a lot of levels at which the being chosen was kind of a mixed bag, right, from, from early on. It's, it's, it's later that it becomes, we are chosen, therefore, right, We're better. better. Um, does every people... See the world from its perspective, of course. Does every people think, on some level, they're the ones who really have it right? Yeah. Sure, right. I'm not saying that's not there. It's there. You know, early Israel was as ethnocentric as any of us. Um, but it is, I think, uh, it becomes a way of coping to say Asher Bacharbanu and meaning we're better. Um, and that, and it's interesting the time at which Kaplan said. It's time to take that out. It's time, it's time to just excise that business. It's, it's too late to reconstruct it. Just felt Kaplan. I'm not, I'm not saying either way. People have very strong feelings about this. I get that. And I honor all of them all the way around the argument. But it's an interesting thing to me when it happened, right? That Kaplan said, it is now time. If we're going to truly move this project forward in, in his and his students' vision of what that meant, it is time to remove these words, it has become so laden with the years of dross of, of the experienced anti-Semitism and all that. It's become layered with so much junk that there's no way to really reconstruct it. Let's get rid of it. We have the same issue today with our country, with a lot of people talking about American exceptionalism. That somehow America was chosen. So it's not just the Jewish not just a Jewish thing. Again, it's our thing par excellence, but, right? It's like I say, you know, about guilt, you know. Jews created it, Catholics perfected it, right? So, um, so back to our, back to our conversation. So, so ger, meaning to dwell, would be somebody who lives here with the, and the reason they're defined by where they dwell is because they're not from here. Right? 
Otherwise, you're a native or whatever other, I can't think right now of another word, a synonym, but you know, there's, there's other words you can use for someone who lives here, right? It, unless you're talking about the fact that they're defined by living here. That means that they're defined by being here because otherwise they wouldn't be. Wouldn't we call that a, a resident alien? Yes, kind of? mm-hmm. exactly. Resident alien. There's um, there's lots of language um, around someone who doesn't come from here but is here. Um, and again, other people want to say maybe, but more for them, more likely that it comes from someone who's become detached from their original context. They are in this context, but that is a detached state from their original context. Well, they're detached from us. Interesting. I, I think I think the reason the scholars don't go there is because of the focus on they shall be one of you, okay. you shall treat them as one of you, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the reasons are, we're going to look at Jonathan Sachs, because they are detached from their context and therefore vulnerable. Okay? So... So it's interesting to look at Gare and say, well, what exactly is the business of Gare in our, in our biblical, if we're staying in the biblical context, what does that, what does it mean? So they're not, they're not what the later rabbis say, the later rabbis say, they're not a convert. There is no convert in the Bible. There is no, there's no Judaism in the Bible. There isn't Jewish yet. Right? There's no Judaism. There's Israelite cult religion. Yes? At this point, aren't they all detached from where they came from? So this is what Torah always uses as one of the reasons you shall treat the Ger the way because. you have to treat them because you were Gerim right. in Egypt. But at this point right now, aren't they... Because aren't they, right now, they're giving, he's giving those rules, but it's... They're there, right? They just, they're in the middle of the desert. Right. So, but, but conceivably the person who's with them who didn't share their origin. Okay. Right. As part of that clan that went down to Egypt. Okay. So yes, it's odd to be talking to a bunch of people who don't have a land. Right. And don't have citizenship anywhere. Right. You shall treat this person as one of you. But remember, right, Reuben, there's Torah history and real history. Like li- real, lived history, right? So this is written by people who are in the land and have been there for a very long time. And right, they're retrojecting this onto the desert situation where they were all kind of without land or anything. But it's written by them. By, it's written by people who are later. Much, 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 much later, um, when there's a you know king and there's a, you know they're a normal nation state within the region. But they've lived amongst. They have lived as Gerim amongst other nations. Also, who the people who wrote this? They also know that experience of, of having been of in exile, of having been a nation within another nation. So we have to go back to our diagram of the documentary hypothesis and ask how early do we have texts about Ger? Do we have texts about Gerim before the exile? Right, so that is a, but that shows already a very sophisticated, because y'all have been coming every week for a very long time, that's a sophisticated (laughs) reading. Like we ask ourselves as sophisticated readers of this, because we are experienced now, readers of Torah, we ask ourselves, hmm, is this pre-exilic or post-exilic? That is a very important lens through which to read some of this. Like, is, it, is a lot of the incidents of Gare in the Bible informed by our, our exilic experience? Okay, that would make a lot of sense. I pride myself on thinking <laughs> that there are texts that predate that experience, right? That we have allied ourselves with those who are displaced. Where would you go? For a very long time. How far back would you go? To, for what? Would you find to support what you're thinking? So you would look at the documentary hypothesis. You'd look, first of all, you would go to the uh, concordance. You'd look for every appearance of the word gare in the Bible. You write all that down. <laughs> Once upon a time, we went to the, we went and we sat with the concordance and we wrote them all down. Now you do a computer search, <laughs> right, for every appearance of the word gare in the Torah. You get your printout. Now you look at the documentary hypothesis for each of those appearances. 
where it appears in Genesis, where it appears in Exodus, who's take that chunk of text and now you have to check the documentary hypothesis. Who wrote that text? Is it J E? Is it P? Is it D? Probably not D if it's Genesis Exodus, right? It's not going to be the Deuteronomist most likely, but it could be P. And if we've argued an early and late P in here a little bit, right? If it's a late P, even if it's in Genesis, it's post-exilic, right? So, so you have to start. But if it's not P, what is exilic? Yeah. Post-exile. So if so if it's a JE source, you have to you have to know when when you're dating JE. If JE is pre-exilic. Now you've got a theory. You've got a theory that there is some appearance of the word "gare" before the exilic experience. Wouldn't it stop though at some point where we thought of ourselves as a people? Because it seems would what have stopped the the question of the gare? Because it seems the way this is written or looked at, it's looked at from the viewpoint of a people looking at a soul, a sojourner by him or herself, who is detached from their people, whoever that may be. So if you drive this back, at some point there is no people. There are no people. They're just Adam, Eve, and you know what comes out of that. So with the with the genesis of this stop pre exilic, that's it. I mean, stop. It wouldn't be there pre Egyptian experience, do you think? No, it was. It was. Abraham was a gear. Mm-hmm. He was not a resident of Canaan. So it goes, in other words, the idea is that anybody that's detached from yes. any people is a gear. Yes. Period. Yes. Okay. Yes. Isn't that universal? Yeah, it's universal. Now, universal as a person that moved around. Yes. Child, but we were always there. I didn't know that word, but mm-hmm. that's, it just, that's how it is. There's the group that has been there, and you can live there a long time, but you're still... Especially in smaller communities, so it, it's so universal. I think it started once you had more than a couple people. Somebody's going to be outside the circle, right? Right. Well, well, and anthropologically, we know that you know xenophobia originates probably with some very practical realities. That if somebody is not us, we don't is a them. And they come over the hill. They are carrying bacteria and viruses to which we are not immune. Early, our early experience of us and them was that them was dangerous, and there was reasons for there's reasons for xenophobia. I mean, not rational, defensible reasons, but there there are roots of xenophobia. And I, I know I'm making a jump, but just hang with me. Um, us and them, yes, is one of the oldest concepts we have. Right. The question is, what do we do with us and them? But certainly, it is a very old, um, yes. very old reality, and it continues at varying degrees all of our lives, even if we're in the country we were born in. Right. I would never, ever, ever have been anything other than a gear in Duluth, Minnesota. Right. They had no idea what to do with me. <laughs> no idea. Right. Love them dearly, learned a lot, you know, about living immersed in another culture, but it was another culture, right? And um, so, yes, when we move around, when we go to regions that are not our, our, our culture of origin, we are absolutely other. Some people are really great at fitting in and see themselves now as us, right? Some people just do that. They're, they're able to do that. Other people, right, even if they're completely accepted, always feel... Other and different and stranger. So I want to hold it. We're going to go to that. Hold that concept for me, will you? Um, Remaining other and different, no matter how welcome you are. I want to hold that to close our conversation with a great piece that I'm going to share with you. But I want to get through the middle stuff first. Sarah, you had your hand up. I had my hand up because it seems to me that a people that celebrates um, Pesach, where it is the story of our exile, uh, such people would have ideas that are pretty strong about being strangers and, and finding a place. Yes. It is definitely our foundational narrative. Definitely. That we were, and we get told, this is why you're going to keep Shabbat. This is why I'm your God and get to tell you what to do. Right? Because you were Gerim in the land of Egypt, and I took you out of there. 
to bring you to a place that would be yours, right? And absolutely, it's our foundational narrative that we ally ourselves with the gear. It is something that continues to inspire me and something I'm deeply, deeply proud of. There's, we, we've talked about lots of flaws with what we would, how we would approach many of these texts. It's one that it continues to resonate profoundly for me is that we have allied ourselves with the situation of the gear. It's ironic that, uh, and although I believe exactly what you've said, converts are still considered gear. Uh, oh, she's a convert. What do you know? We're, we're going to talk about that. Okay. So that's part of the piece we're going to read at the end. Rick? So I hate to keep going to the end, um, but, but nothing's perfect. And, you know, given this time and where we are in the 4th of July, you know, I, I do want to bring up the point that sort of plays a little bit off what Bert said, was that, look, people came to North America who were not native to here, and we were all here. But there was something that happened with the Declaration of Independence, the founding of this country, where they said, you know, what, for many become one. And yes, it wasn't perfect because there were Native Americans, and, you know, women didn't have full rights. Slaves didn't have full rights. But today we look at, and while you may have been in Minnesota, you may have been geared to Minnesota, I mean, you, you know, the concept is being challenged today, but the concept was you become an American. And that was something very unique in history um, that, you know, from many different places, Gare did become one. And I just think we ought to acknowledge that and celebrate at least the good aspects of that as we get to the 4th of July weekend. Okay. So going back to the Gare. So... The one thing I want to make sure we understand is that it's not clear ever in Torah exactly what what is the ger obligated to and what are they not obligated to. The ger was a permanent resident alien, and it says there shall be one law for you and the stranger who lives among you. But there are clearly some things the ger wasn't obligated to, or or how are they still a ger? Right? Why are they not an Israelite? If they, if they're doing everything the Israelites doing, wouldn't they be Israelite? Right? The ger can bring a Pesach offering as long as the ger is circumcised. So even being circumcised and living with the Israelites and doing what the Israelites do doesn't make you Israelite. So then you're then then not everything of Torah would have been incumbent on a non-Israelite. But we're not told exactly which things are and which things aren't. What we know is that we are obliged to treat the gear with the same respect that we would treat an Israelite vis-a-vis how Torah tells us to behave, except them you can make a slave. Right? A Hebrew, you can't. A Hebrew has to be freed at the Jubilee, right? And like, there's, there's just like complicated stuff around what you can and cannot do with an Israelite who's an indentured servant, and there's a different status for the gear. So, right, so so there's still a difference, but there's some that looks like it's the same, so we're just not, I want to leave us with it's just for our last piece, it's just not clear which things are incumbent upon the gear and which aren't. We know some things that are, but we don't know all of them. What differentiates a circumcised gear from a non-circumcised gear? Circumcision. <laughs> 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 what do they get to do? They get to bring the Paschal offering. Okay, and that's the only thing. I don't. I shouldn't say I know. I don't know. I would have to look at. I'd have to look it up to see what else that. I know that in the incident with Dina, how do they trick the men of those towns with with the rape of Dina? Is they say no one can marry an Israelite woman who isn't circumcised. So all the men of both towns are circumcised. And that's what, while they're recovering, they go in and decimate them and slaughter them. So there's, so there's marriage stuff, apparently. You know, either they're making that up or there really is, you know, um, some stuff around, you know, marriage and, and kinship ties might be affected by circumcision, but I'm not, I'm not an expert on, on exactly what that difference is. But, but it's a good question. There seems to be some. Didn't circumcision symbolize devotion and connection to Yudhe Buffet? Yes, yes, but many gayrim did that and were not circumcised, right? So they, they could do that and live among Israelites and not be circumcised. You know, Yitro had a relationship with Yodhei Vafei, not exclusively, but generally that, that was only for Israelites. You shall have no other gods before me. 
right? That, that's just Israelite. Uh, other folks were happy to worship lots of different gods, including the gods of different nations. Like, no problem. Syncretistic worship. We know there, there was a, um, a cave painting in southern Egypt. Or, I don't know if it's southern Egypt. In, in Egypt. Uh, called, it's a place called Kuntilat Adrud. And in Kuntilat Adrud, there is a very, very, very old drawing that is Yudhe and his consort, Asherah. So there is clearly syncretistic worship happening that the prophets are yelling and screaming about. So when the prophets say, tear down their, their Asherahs, right? It's not just them, and it's not just apostasy. It's Yudhe and his consort, Asherah, right? You, you can't have that. You don't get to have Asherah anymore. But it's clear that, that folks still had this idea of worshiping Yudhe Okay, that's the new chief god in town. No problem. But they weren't giving up Asherah. They were not giving up the tree in the living room in winter. And do, do the, does the Orthodox today look at a convert to Orthodoxy? As one of the tribe or as a gear who is honored? What what role? The, I'm a little confused about it. Are they ever allowed, ever like one? Because by the way, there was a German philosopher named Wilhelm Marr who was supposedly given credit to be ideological thought for Hitler, who said that conversion never could solve the situation. Yeah, so it's a, it's a very complicated question, um, and I'm not using that to dodge. I, I mean, I'll sum up, the, the in my understanding, the complication. According to Jewish law, once you convert and are living a full Jewish life, you are completely Jewish, and you are not, you are not allowed to remind a convert of their origins, ever. You are not allowed to say, oh, that's very lovely of your opinion about that today, Judith, when last week you were celebrating Christmas. <laughs> right? I was at your house for Christmas dinner um, three years ago. So that's lovely you that were. you think that. <laughs> no, I was not. Um, right? So, and I didn't. And you didn't. Um, right? But that's, because that's, that's a way to say, okay, yes, I honor your Jewish opinion and... But it's there. I remember, it's you know, very much there. right? So that, that you're not really what you're halachically, you are not allowed ever to mention to a convert their status as a convert. Having said that, will they ever marry into a rabbinic dynasty? No. <laughs> so there's there's a difference, but but part of it isn't discrimination against the ger. Some of it is a preference for people with yichus. So Tevya couldn't marry into that. His daughters couldn't right. marry into that line either. And he's born a Jew. So some of it is not about your other. It's that only people who have yichis, who have connection, right, high birth in pedigree, only people with status and pedigree can marry into this line. And a convert generally will not be somebody who's ever going to overcome that. But other than that, the convert is... Fully. Correct. They are fully Jewish. Now, as human beings, we'll go back to someone crests the hill who has different viruses than you. Um, are we always a little suspicious of the other who's going to be us? Yes. Generally, yes. I, I mean, I'll say this. There are people within a community who are, and I'm going to use this not in a good way, purists, um, who are like, they're always suspicious of somebody becoming us. They're never really us. But halachically, it's forbidden. In other words, halacha is always trying to deal with our baser instincts that, that are just there. Like we all have lust. We all have greed. We all have whatever. We own that. We know that. Torah is here to help us mitigate those desires or, or what's the opposite of desire? <laughs> Repult, whatever. You know, right. I can never understand converts because I can never understand who would want to become a Jew. Right. <laughs> that that's right. Well, and so that's one of the reasons Halacha says, you know, that they are they stand in a higher place than the Jew yes. of birth exactly. because they chose this exactly. and didn't have to and obligated themselves to the yoke of of heaven, the yoke of the mitzvot and didn't need to be yoked. Mm -hmm. Um and 
And there are many people who feel that way, you know, throughout Jewish history. And we have folks who are folks who aren't going to ever, right, accept Absolutely. somebody's uh, conversion as uh, real or as legitimate or whatever. All right, let's go to um, the, the Rabbi Jonathan Sachs piece. Drop down to the gray paragraphs in the middle. He's writing about Parshat Mishpatim. Doesn't matter because we're studying Ger, right? We're studying... I just wanted to dig into this uh, concept a little bit because I think it's incredibly important for our time and what's happening right now at this moment in our history, in the history of Israel, in the history of um, Britain, uh, and just basically everywhere in our world right now. We're not unique. This has happened lots of times, including... Uh, in Torah times, right? That there's a shift of population and it causes extreme stress when you've got refugees moving all over the place. Usually it's a, it's a cause of war, right? In the ancient world, that was one of the major causes of war is you've got displaced people and a lot of displaced people moving. They got to go somewhere. And where are they going to go? To places where other people already live. This is what is a major cause of war in the ancient world. And I, I think in some ways still today, right? Because all that refugee stuff is about um, lack of resources, right? There's a competition for resources. That's why you take someone's land, essentially, because you want their resources. Right. So go to Jonathan Sachs. One of the questions, so right above that gray, you know, the little gray writing, one of the questions the sages asked was about the difference between ill-treatment and oppression. We are forbidden to ill-treat or oppress the stranger, right? So what's the difference between that? Oppression, they said, uh, meant monetary wrongdoing, taking financial advantage by robbery or overcharging. Ill-treatment referred to verbal abuse, reminding the stranger of his or her origins. So this is rabbinic. It's after, after the biblical period. Okay. So um, anyway, so I want to I be clear about that. The rabbis were like physically, like in terms of them having an opportunity to fully integrate because they can afford a house, they can send their child to college. You cannot in any way interfere with that success, material success for the gear, nor can you remind them of their origin and say, yeah, you're here, but you're not really one of us, okay? So let's go. turn your page over. And again, I always encourage you to read all of this at home. We're just going to do the highlights that we can do in here. Oh my gosh, where does the time go? All right, so Nachmanides, uh, so Nachmanides, one of our great commentators, Ramban, there's Rambam and Ramban. So Ramban um, Nachmanides says that there are two reasons, and there's two logical reasons we get loving the stranger for you or strangers in the land of Egypt. Like, w- what is that really about? Look at the gray, the two little gray paragraphs. Uh, and what we get from Sachs is the breakdown into different kinds of uh, reasons the stranger is vulnerable, right? Uh, so like the third sentence down, you know that you were strangers in the land of Egypt and I saw the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed you and I avenged your cause on them because I behold the tears of such who are oppressed and have no comforter and on the side of their oppressors there is power and I deliver each one from him that is too strong for him. Likewise, you shall not afflict the widow and the orphan for I will hear their cry for all these people do not rely upon themselves but trust in me. Meaning they are powerless. Politically, they are powerless. They have no access to power that would protect them from abuses by other people. God says, that is my cause. Right? And so if you mess with that, you're messing with me. Because I protect the powerless. Second one, for you know what it feels like to be a stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. That is to say, you know that every stranger feels depressed and is always sighing and crying and his eyes are always directed towards God. Therefore, God will have mercy upon him even as God showed mercy to you as it is written and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came up to God by reason of the bondage and God had mercy on them not because of their merits. Not because of their merits, but only on account of the bondage. So will God do for all who are oppressed. So the second one is psychological, emotional, that feeling of being displaced, of never fitting in, no matter how long you're there. 
You, the sighing, the crying, I think it's beautiful. Nachmanides captures so beautifully the immigrant experience of sighing, crying, homesickness. Right? I was just listening to somebody on NPR who talked beautifully about her, her mother being an immigrant from Sweden and the sighing of her mother. That, and she'd get this faraway look and she knew her mother was thinking of home. And no matter how long they were in Wisconsin, it wasn't home. She says, I've lost my... And she wouldn't speak English. And, they, and um, the daughter said, her mother would say, I've lost my mountains. I've lost the air of my homeland. I've lost my mother. That, I'm assuming she left in Sweden. I lo- I've lost my mother. I will not lose my language. That was her only home. That was, my, that was home. That was the only place she could feel at home was in that um, in her language um, and you know that, that kind of just kind of constant wistful um, the mix of pain and, and longing so so these two these two levels of the experience of of being other of being uh, both politically without support and you know so vulnerable in that sense as well as just the psychological emotional spiritual vulnerability of being Homesick all the time, being being not uh, at home. Turn your page over. <laughs> Drop down to the bottom. So it was in the ancient world. As we've said, hatred of the foreigner is the oldest of passions, going back to tribalism and the prehistory of civilization. The Greek called strangers barbarians because of their, it seemed to them, outlandish speech that sounded like the bleeding of sheep. So it's onomatopoeia, barbarians. With, you know, that, that, that's how foreign speech sounded to them. <laughs> right, probably, maybe. The Romans were equally dismissive of non-Hellenistic races. The pages of history are stained with blood spilled in the name of racial or ethnic conflict. Um, and then, so he goes through to trace, uh, Sachs does, um, how, going to what Rick was trying to say, how we've moved on from there. In revolutionary France, as the rights of man were being pronounced in 1789, riots broke out against the Jewish community in Alsace. Hatred against English and German immigrant workers persisted through the 19th century. In 1881 in Marseille, a crowd of 10,000 went on a rampage attacking Italians and their property. Dislike of the unlike is as old as mankind. Turn your page. He's going to continue to trace right, the development of thought all the way through to David Hume and Adam Smith, right? Fourth paragraph down, talking about um, reason and Kant and all these wonderful uh, innovations. And he says, nothing, he said, neither succeeded. Villages and townships where Jews had lived for almost a thousand years witnessed their mass murder or deportation to the extermination camps with little or no protest. Neither Kantian reason nor human emotion were strong enough to inoculate Europe against genocide. Centuries of religiously inspired hate came together with pseudoscientific theories of race and social Darwinism to relegate whole populations above all the Jews to the category of subhuman, right? So even though we think we're so advanced and we've moved so far from this tribalism and embarrassing clan behavior, guess what? Right? Sachs is saying it's still there. Um, it is terrifying in retrospect to grasp how seriously the Torah took the phenomenon of xenophobia, hatred of the stranger. It is as if the Torah were saying with the utmost clarity, reason is insufficient. Sympathy is inadequate. Only the force of history and memory is strong enough to form a counterweight to hate. And I would argue the same way Torah talks about Egypt, we living here talk about the Shoah. That history, what he's saying is forget reason, doesn't work in the end. Because you can use reason to exterminate people. Right? You can, your intellect can bring you... There were brilliant scientists in Germany who came up with these ideas. They were geniuses. You can use reason to defend all kinds of behavior that's heinous morally. And even sympathy, really? You can get to a place where they're not worth our sympathy. Some people are. Those people are not, right? Um, the, the force of history and memory is the only thing strong enough to form a counterweight to hate. So even if we feel that impulse, the Shoah protects us, he's saying. If we go there, if we go there and remember 
you were the ones in line for gas chambers. Now think about how you want to treat these people. Um, I think he's absolutely right. And I'm not saying those are the only ways to do it. Every people has to lean into, right, history and memory of their experience of suffering in order to protect us from doing what it just comes too naturally, too easily to do. Um, okay, so I was listening to... Uh, I was listening to NPR. I, I just got a, a new lease on a new car, and it has, they give you three months of satellite radio free. Um, and so I'm afraid, I'm very afraid that I'm hooked, um, which is going to be expensive. But um, one of the reasons I'm hooked is because, like, the mountains mean I can't get a signal always for NPR, and I don't, I don't really want to listen to music. I want to be informed because I don't really love watching the news. Right, so, whatever. So, like, I have BBC World, right? So I've heard a lot about Brexit. I know a lot about Brexit um, now um, because it's every day, right? There's coverage coming out of the BBC about what's happening with Brexit. And I was listening to a piece. Um, they were talking to a woman who uh, clearly was of darker skin, uh, and she was talking about the harassment she's experiencing openly now, um, now that they've voted to leave the European Union. She said she's had 12 friends in the last several days tell her the same thing. One was, two were dark, were African. They were called the N-word on the train and told to get off the train. You don't belong here. And the N-word was hurled at them several times. Um, another situation happened and one of her friends tried to intervene. She was told she would be raped if she didn't stop intervening, that this person doesn't deserve defense and doesn't belong here in, in London. I'm not, not in London. I don't know. No. I'm just talking about, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't pay attention. Gave license. Yeah. So, um, and she she said that um, you know to the fact that some people you know they're born. She's born in England. She's she's born there. Her heritage and her mind, of course, is from wherever her parents come from. But her her whole life is English. She's English. And um, and so someone said to her, "Well, if a pig is born in a stable, it doesn't make it a horse." <laughs> so, right. It, here it is, right? You don't belong here. You aren't one of us. It doesn't matter that you're born here. You're not. A, you're not a horse. Just because you're born here. Hmm? So this is, you know, when we look at, you know, when we look at language in our country in the elections about building walls and and keeping people out and shipping people. Home and um, people because of their heritage. And then we look at. I was just talking to someone from the Jaffa Institute. I had lunch uh, with Mitch Chupak from the Jaffa Institute, with whom we've had a very long uh, relationship. And the Jaffa Institute was founded on taking care of the people at the margins, taking care of the people that, of the people in Tel Aviv and Jaffa. It started in Jaffa, you know, helping the people of Jaffa, but in Tel Aviv and Jaffa, whom nobody you know really wanted to deal with or couldn't because they were over the government was overwhelmed, whatever. This is the work they do. Arab, Jew, doesn't matter. They are dealing with the poorest of the poor, the most neglected of the neglected, the hardest of the hard cases. Um, and he was talking to me. He said what they're doing right now is really working very hard on, and they have to be very careful about it, but working on educating the children of migrant workers. Because a lot of Israelis, just like the rest of us, are saying, well, we social services are tight enough. They're not Israeli citizens. We, you know, the, we can't pay for social services for all these people who aren't even citizens. The Jaffa Institute says, we get that. We know that they're not Israelis. They are Gerim. But as long as they're here, we have a very clear injunction about the Ger. And the Jaffa Institute really feels that as long as they're here in Israel, he said these kids are born in Israel. It's all they know. All they know is Hebrew. They don't know any other language. They're not attached to any other place. Their parents might be, and they might be in limbo, but these are Israeli kids in terms of being born here. He says, we have, they're here. We have to educate them. We have to take care of them. And, um, what, of course. So, um, so I guess what I'm saying is just like in the space of just a few days as I'm looking at this text, I'm like, it's everywhere. 
right? It is everywhere. Whether and we're we're the developed world. We're the first world. We're the richest country in the history of the world, and we want to build a wall. Many of us, right? Britain, one of the richest countries in the European Union, right? And that whole Brexit vote, from what I understand from the BBC, you know, a lot of that was about folks outside of London who feel like they're they're competing for our jobs. They're taking our jobs. They're taking our opportunities. And there's not enough, you know, to take care of the kids who are here or you know whoever's here. We got to take care of them too. Forget about it. You were out. That a lot of it was about immigration and. And a lot of other things. Yeah, there are other things. And a lot of, of course, of course. Absolutely, I'm just talking about giving sort of like one slice. Because I don't care about looking yeah. at the whole Brexit. I, that's not yeah. that's not my conversation this morning. My conversation is about the fact that the most the richest countries in the first world still. We are dealing with the issue of the gear. We are dealing with what it means. I'm not saying I have a solution. I'm not saying I have an opinion on what should be done. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's a great thing that we have lots of folks moving around the globe. I'm saying all I care about is teaching to what Torah is telling us. Listen very carefully to this kind of language. Because a pig is born in a stable doesn't make it a horse. The minute we go there... The minute we do not challenge that characterization, forget the problem. I'm not saying it's not a problem. I'm not saying there aren't many problems to be addressed. The minute we start using that language, the minute we start talking about us and them, you people, you people, the minute we allow that, the minute we don't challenge it, we violate one of the basic injunctions of our tradition. You are Gairim in the land of Egypt, so figure it out. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to argue. You're going to have to make hard choices, but you are, you are commanded to figure it out. And I feel like it is never more important than now to seriously lean into this tradition because it's easy to start going down right a slippery slope and I get it I'm not saying I'm immune I'm saying I think Torah remains an important corrective for our time that we need to start challenging and separating issues right so when it comes to we need to leave the European Union because they're taking our job like, there's lots of reasons we might need to leave let's have that conversation but, but, but let's have immigration be a different conversation this morning is you're somewhat painting those people who wanted to, and I'm not saying I'm in favor or against, mm -hmm. but what I do believe is that there was a multitude of reasons why I agree. I agree. I agree. I'm saying there's enough articulation going on from what I've heard. There's enough being articulated by people who say their vote was about immigration that I'm I'm just saying it's out there and it's, it's active. It's here. It's in Israel. It's in the place. I'm talking about the places we we care about that we identify with, and it is virulent right now. And I'm afraid if we don't challenge it, this rhetoric can get so so normalized. That's the point about the Brexit thing. I guess I wanted to say that she and twelve of her friends now are experiencing harassment that wasn't allowed before culturally. But now that the votes happened, there's this kind of tacit thing happening that I'm not saying anyone intended. Right. It's happened. They were talking about it. Their experience is that something has changed. And now there's permission given. They feel there's per Some people feel that permission is given to them now to express xenophobia Mm -hmm. in a way that wasn't true before the vote. That has me very concerned, right? I'm very concerned about our election rhetoric around immigration, and I'm very concerned about what that means for our country and what that is giving, what, what, what flames are being fanned with the yeah. level of rhetoric we've seen, which I've never seen, ever, I'm not that old, but I, I, you know. I am, uh, and I've never seen right. where uh, Trump can say uh, that these people don't deserve anything because they're 
You've never seen it here. Right. Well, so the. Seen it. Yeah. Look, but, <laughs> right. Look, and my, my son wrote a paper at his own choice on the House on, on American Affairs Committee, right? When we were kicking out communists and blacklisting them. And, you know, there's been, and, and Hamilton and Aaron Burr shot each other. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a lot of stuff going on. I might, I agree with everything that you're saying. I just think that it's unfortunate that our country, Britain, the world can't be having conversations to say, you know what? We do have inequalities. We do have have and have nots. We do have global issues. You know, yet we may be the richest country in the world, but you know, we have our own internal challenges. Absolutely. And, you know, maybe to just say a wall isn't right, but you know, also there are a lot of people in this country. The reason why Trump is getting all the attention he is, and I, I'm appalled by Trump um, and offended through every part of my body by Trump. But the reason he's resonating is because a lot of people are like, they don't hate Mexicans, they're not racist, they don't want to necessarily throw people out, but this government, nobody's making an attempt to, before you get to the point where Britain was at or somewhere else is at, to have civil conversations and say, let's let's look at our immigration system and, So that's the key. Yes. That's exactly right. That's exactly the key. Is Torah would say, so... Figure it out. Fix it. And we've got to have hard conversations. And we've got to listen to each other in ways that are really challenging for us to do to people we disagree with, right, that we also want to demonize and otherize. And, um, Republican or Democrat. Exactly right. That when we can listen to each other and hold the bigger goal and have that conversation, then we can get at solving some of the problems that are making people so angry, right, that are that feel betrayed by the system, which I totally understand. The, and we have to constantly work and stand openly and loudly against the folks who, because they feel they don't have, because they feel they've been cheated, want to point to somebody else and say, it's because y'all are here that we don't have. And that I'm not saying they're not linked. I'm not saying they're not related. And it doesn't need reform. I'm saying it's too easy to go from anger that I don't have to blame. And whose fault is it? And that is something the Jew knows more about in modern times than anybody else, Robert. Or should. Yeah, it, it just strikes me that um, even historically and certainly today, it, it's a lot easier for leaders, followers, whatever, to speak to fear to win rather than speaking to fix. Yes. And if you look historically at people that we think were just terrific, effective leaders, they were the ones who spoke to fix not to fear. But what's going on is people who should be taking advantage of this, but are, are just speaking to fear for their own personal Absolutely. Sheldon, I want to ask if you would be willing, and if not, it's totally fine, obviously, um, to share anything that, that was coming up. There seemed there was a very powerful response to some stuff this morning. Are you willing to share any of that? Well, um, I've been thinking that uh, the reason Trump is so popular is there's millions and millions of people in this country who have lost jobs, terrible drug problems, and they're not being looked after. This this great middle class, and, and uh, we we sit here and we uh, are so uh, negative about them. Our president uh, disparages them has disparaged them. All they care about is guns. Remember his comment? Disparaged that whole class. And they feel that the uh, the poor get a lot of attention, the elite are fine, and they're, they're hollowing out. That's what's led to this strong uh, Trump support. And the same thing in England. Yeah, you know, we see where the votes came from. London's fine. Mm-hmm. Scotland wants to stay. The, the, the great center of England is just like the great center of this country. And we don't talk about those people enough. We are very uh, here as we talk about the poor, helping the poor, helping uh, the, uh, the ethnic minorities. We don't talk about that great bulk of the United States uh, middle class that, that has suffered. And so I think we should be more uh, attuned to that. So I want, I want you to, to drop into the heart space that I saw you in earlier. What, what was in your heart space? My heart space. Were you just sneezing or? 
I thought I felt a really visceral reaction from you in your heart about something we were to... <laughs> Never mind then. I stand corrected. All right. All right. Never mind. Um, all right. So, right. I mean, absolutely. Like, so, and, you know, and, and when you've got that much, right, that we get it. Well, I think we get that there's a, there's been a huge problem, right, that, that you're talking about and identifying and, and, Where's the we've conversation ignored, around we've fixing millions it? Millions and millions of people in this country, and that's not to, not to say that there are not a, a lot of them that are prejudiced. But I, I think we have to think about how we've allowed a, a large bulk of the United States to be ignored. Hundred percent, hundred percent. We need to get at the solutions. Okay, one more comment, and we're gonna. Yeah, I'm gonna close. In the Midwest, moving around, and that was a group of people that lived really nice lifestyles with like. Well, well, the anger and despair that comes out of the growing gap between rich and poor. We know that's been happening. We're not doing anything about it. But, and, I, and my teaching this morning is about how we stop that from becoming xenophobia and becoming a game of blaming anybody other than the folks who have the power to change it. Right? That, that's, that, that's what we need to be directing our, our energy and, and whatever. Um, I want to close with a concept that I just found fascinating um, from this book Torah Queries um, Torah from a Queer Perspective um, and as always I am surprised, fascinated and refreshed by the reading uh, from a queer perspective so um, queering the text is another good one um, but let's look at let's look at uh, this uh, piece and sh- crap I forgot to put the, the author uh, of the piece on here I'll fix that Bert when we scan it to put online it is Martin Kavka, K-A-V-K-A. It's on the back? Excellent. On the top corner where it says page 270, Martin Kavka. Okay. So he's, remember I told you that we're not sure which things the proselyte, you know, the, the gear needs to take on. Because like, in later rabbinic parlance it becomes, you know, proselyte, whatever. So someone who's kind of doing yud heh religion but isn't really Israelite. So what are they doing? So he says... The Ger in Deuteronomy 31.12 is in the strange position of being both apparently legal, legally equal to and socially different from the Israelite. That means that we cannot once and for all answer the question of who the Ger is in this verse. And that, in turn, means that we cannot answer the question of what commandments are or are not binding on the Ger. Go down to the next paragraph. All queer readers of Torah are strangers. Gerim. Either in our communities or in the broader fabric of Judaism. When queer congregants are not taken as equal members of a community but still show up at services and are active in congregational life, we have a class of gayrim. When non-traditional marriages are not recognized, we have a class of gayrim. And although queer Jews may be the most visible gayrim in Jewish communities, we are not the only ones. When our straight friends who converted at marriage are seen as fake Jews by people down the pew or in other congregations, we have a class of gayrim. When our straight friends who converted and proceeded to learn more about the Jewish tradition than those who were born Jewish become objects of unjust resentment, we have a class of gayrim. Whenever any Jew is judged to be not Jewish enough to marry, to share food with, to teach children, to serve on committees, we have a class of gayrim. It is, a, it is tempting to address the situation by broadening the category of Jew, by saying that all of these marginal Jews are no less Jewish than any other Jew, which is where we tend to go, right? I'm like, yeah, of course, right? But he's going to go, interesting, uh-uh. But I hope instead that the identity of Ger is cherished by those who are estranged from the tradition. Why? 
Because if Deuteronomy 31.12 teaches us that Jewish tradition has no set answer to the question of what the rights and responsibilities of the gay are, it becomes a question that we gayrim have to answer ourselves as we hear the Torah. Those texts offer little guidance, and so we must become their guides, making of them what we will, hopefully with the respect and love and support of those in our local communities. If queer Jews were to do this, to remain in their communities but remain in them as gayrim, it would no longer matter what sex acts between men are characterized as abominable in Leviticus or whether Maimonides sanctions lashes for women who rub against each other in the Mishnah Torah. We are gayrim. And as soon as we take on an identity that forces us to hear Torah in a different way, we gain the freedom to make something else of those passages in the tradition and find ourselves in the Jewish tradition once more. Meaning, if, if I'm a gayer and I don't have to take on all the laws, then what do I care what Leviticus says about blah, 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 blah? I don't have to take that one on if I'm a gayer. I can choose to say I'm fully a member of the community because it says so right here in what we just read that I'm a full member of the community, but I'm a gayer. Very interesting, right? Because normally we say, we don't want that status. We don't want gayer. We don't want other. We don't want, we want everybody in, well, this is how we feel in progressive Judaism anyway. We want everybody to be in the tent and everybody to be equal and everybody to be the same vis-a-vis the status Jew, right? Very interesting. A queer Jew saying, what if we were to hold on to the status of gayer as a sacred category that challenges in a respectful and loving way a lot of the texts we read that, that non-gay Reem have to struggle with. Very interesting. So Maybe if we were to do this, queer Jews could be at the forefront of putting an end to the tired who is a Jew debate that seems to bedevil every Jewish community. We who are strangers in and through that identity gain power to get the tradition to meet our needs even and especially in moments of personal crisis. But we can do this only by seeing ourselves as gay. I'm not going to... I don't know how much I agree with that, but I think it's an interesting point. Nevertheless, as we guide the text back to us, we will become gayrim in the full sense of the word, simultaneously both strangers and proselytes. At that moment, the answer to the, to the question, who is a Jew, will be as banal as the answer to the question, who is a gayr? Interesting quote from Lydia Kukal, who wrote Jews by Choice. Mm-hmm. Her final statement is, in effect, we are all Jews by choice. 100%. especially, as Rick said, in this great country of America, the first country, uh, P.S., to accept Jews as full citizens from its inception, the only country ever to accept Jews uh, from the beginning and not take it away ever, even. Um, It was this this great country uh, that we live in whose uh, birth we celebrate this uh, Monday. Um, so uh, as we do that may we dedicate ourselves through our reading of Torah as Jews who are welcome in this country who are not for the most part gayrim anymore Um, may we use our understanding of Torah and its call to compassion and justice and digging in and listening with empathy and compassion may we work hard to have the difficult, very challenging conversations it's going to require for us to make this country live into the amazing, holy, and fantastic values uh, that its founders envisioned for us to enjoy and defend and protect and move forward. Good Shabbos. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.